The Guardian. Hi, producer Madeline here. A few months into the pandemic, it began to emerge that many people who caught COVID-19 lost their sense of smell, and often very suddenly. For others, taste also disappeared. Now, studies have shown that, thankfully, the majority recover both senses to some degree within weeks. Yet there is an unfortunate group whose regained taste and smell are distorted, with odours and flavours perceived as different or unpleasant. Another set of sufferers lose their sense of taste and remain anosmic for months on end. Whilst researchers study the mechanisms behind the loss of taste and smell and treatments that might help people to build their senses back up again, here on the podcast we wanted to return to an episode broadcast in 2016, exploring what it's actually like to live without smell. The episode was part of a special series from The Guardian called Brainwaves, exploring the science and emotion of our everyday lives. Before I leave you to dive in, if you'd like to get in touch with us, do email scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We'll be back on Tuesday with our usual coverage. See you then, and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brainwaves. I'm Natalie Nahai. And I'm Kevin Fong. And in our second instalment, we'll be looking at the role that smells and taste and food play in our memories and our emotions. Um, now, now, Natalie, there must be something, the smell of which or the taste of which reminds you of some deep-seated memory. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's one in particular, Tocino de Cielo, which is a, a classically Gibraltarian dish, which is actually translatable as heavenly pig. And it's basically sort of egg-type um, dessert that you get and I remember my great aunt used to make it for us all the time during the summer times when we used to go visit and I had it a couple of years ago after she'd passed away and it was just this wonderful reminiscence of being back in her kitchen and helping her make it when I was little um yeah how, how about you so uh, there's there's a very specific smell that I remember from my time working uh, in the buildings at NASA and, and it didn't matter which building you're in or which field center so whether you're at Cape Canaveral in Florida or whether you're in Houston they all smell the same. I'm not sure whether it was the air conditioning or whether it's the thing they used to clean the halls, but I've just got that sense of these cold corridors. There's a really characteristic sort of sweet smell and, you know, it instantly calls into mind all of those locations. So, so yeah, it, it I, th- I think that's, a, you know, something everyone can relate to really that really hard link between memories and, and things that you smell or things that you taste. And, and that's something that this guy knows all about. It's interesting because this is what we call the Proust phenomenon, since the famous description uh, that Proust gave of his character Marcel. I'm Barry Smith. I'm from the Centre for the Study of the Senses at the University of London. And that's where we look at all the ways that our sensory information provides us with uh, knowledge of the world around us and ourselves. Slowly and suddenly, he thinks, ah, that was an enormously powerful experience I just had. And he has to figure out what it is. But the Proust phenomenon for the rest of us seems to be that immediate recognition. And that means that smells seem to encapsulate uh, particular episodes of our past. And we didn't even know that we had laid down those memories. I think that's why we're surprised and delighted when we suddenly re-experience something from the past. We didn't know it was in there. And it may be that those 
episodic smell-triggered memories are more reliable simply because they don't get interfered with. So they may have uh, been put away and locked away in their little memory capsule. And then when we open them, there's a kind of time travel that smell gives you that's very unlike some of the other senses. So I've always thought it must be a very effective uh, revision method to sort of sit there with various smelling salts as you're going through your books and then just break them out on your desk during the exam. I'm sure that would work really well. You know, I tried that. It seemed to be quite effective. And there was some really interesting research that came out around Sorry, the smell of just, peppermint. Sorry, <laughs> did you just say you tried that? Yeah, but with, uh, with peppermint oils, aromatherapy oils. Well, my in, in, in your exam? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'd read about it, about how if you're in a specific state or you learn in a particular context and you have a cue that you then associate with a stimulus, when you bring the cue back, you can end up with a stronger recollection of the stimulus that you were um, trying to remember. Yeah, but it's definitely a phenomenon, that link, that very hard link between smell and memory. But, but what has this got to do with emotion? Well, there's some really interesting research that's looked at the complexity of emotion and memory and how it can be triggered, like we just heard, by a simple sensory cue. And the thinking is, in current scientific research, that this is probably due to brain anatomy. So incoming smells tend to be processed by the olfactory bulb, which starts right inside your nose and then runs along the bottom of your brain. And this has direct connections to two key brain areas that are strongly implicated in both emotion and memory. So you've got the amygdala and the hippocampus. And what's really curious is that the visual, auditory and tactile information don't actually pass through these brain areas. So it's thought that when you experience a smell, it kind of bypasses these intermediate brain areas and, and gives you a much more direct experience of something, which makes it more easily accessible. So it's, it's almost the only bit of a neuroanatomy I know that the olfactory bulb is a forward projection of the brain. I don't think I really appreciated how closely it was connected to those areas that, that are so tightly coupled to emotion. Uh, and of course, taste uh, and smell are very tightly coupled. And, you know, we're aware that when we have a cold, food doesn't taste right. Uh, but that's not the only coupling, is it, Natalie? No, so there's been some really interesting research done also predominantly by certain chefs, including Heston Blumenthal, looking at all of the different factors that contribute to our experience of taste. And I'd love to read a quick quote. And he said, eating is the only thing we do that involves all the senses. I don't think that we realise just how much influence the senses actually have on the way that we process information from mouth to brain. And what's fascinating when we take that quote and we look at the different research that's being done around these factors that influence our experience of taste, you find that things like sound, colour, your environment, all of these things can actually heavily influence our experience to, to sort of maybe suggest that there's some kind of form of synesthesia that happens for all of us, which blends all of these different elements to give us an overwhelming sensation of what we call taste. So, for instance, um, you might find that sound, the crispiness of crisps contributes to your experience of them being fresh or for instance in a specific environment whether it's the packaging of a food or the name and label or the way in which it's served for instance if you're listening to uh, the sound of sizzling bacon does it make bacon and egg ice cream served in the fat duck taste more like bacon and eggs yes the evidence suggests that we can heavily be influenced by all of these different factors and so um, I think it's quite easy to accept that, that our experience of the world and so our emotions are sort of multi-sensory. They involve everything in our sense of taste, our sense of smell, the way things feel and look. But what happens 
if you're missing one of those senses. And we're about to hear from someone who knows exactly what that's like. This is Lucy Mangan, a journalist here at The Guardian who was born without the ability to smell. We sent her to multi-sensory chef Joseph Youssef at Kitchen Theory to test the limits of her taste. Now, I'm a bit worried because you're an incredibly talented chef and to your sort of molecular gastronomy degree, and you're about to give me this taste test, and I am going to be so lacking. It's going to be embarrassing, but let's give it a go. That's weird. That must, well, that must be umami because it's, it's like nothing else. That's too many balls of chalk. That's got to be, <laughs> that's got to be bitter. Indeed. Oh, that's pure evil. That looks like salt. It is salt. There we go. This one's a lovely brown colour. And that's sugar. At last. Good. Well, we got there in the end. (laughs) Always good to end on a sweet note. It's nice. So, one thing that we can see from this is that you can obviously distinguish between all the five basic tastes. And I think this is really important for people to understand the difference between being able to perceive flavour which you struggle with, I believe, and being able to distinguish and associate um, and articulate tastes in, in a dish that you're eating. Well, that bit, was, that bit of meringue was like um, popping candy, space stuff. I'm getting a Proustian rush, that's amazing. Have you put popping candy in it? Yes. Have you? Yeah. Ah! <laughs> Does something to bring it to life, especially when it's very intensified in your head and yeah, then you get yeah. the popping candy, all of a sudden it adds layer upon layer it's of mental. dimension to what you're eating. That were mental, aren't There is this, this emotional component to food that I think I'm missing. When I, when I, when I, a few times I serve a meal to people, I'm just like, I'm so glad just to get it on the table. I never think that people might have been looking forward to it or hoping for something really nice. I'm just glad they've got it, because that's all I got. I'm like, oh yes, fuel time. You know, but of course for, other, for, for my poor guests, it's a bigger deal and a bigger disappointment. How do you find that impact when you're, let's say, in social situations of having a drink, having a glass of wine, for instance? Uh, well, I don't drink wine, unless it's fizzy, because it all okay. tastes like things. But yeah, so I suppose what I mean is, is if we didn't have to have food for obviously living purposes, um, I wouldn't miss it. It'd be very nice just to be able to pop a pill and mm. do it that way. But if going along to kind of multi-sensory kind of dining events where they're, well, like what we do at Kitchen Theory, really try and engage all your senses, surely that would be something like some of the little elements you saw in the dishes here that would maybe kind of bring out a bit more enjoyment in Yeah, anything that's broadening the experience that for me is so limited. Yeah. It's good, yeah. You must never let me cook for you. I go by, <laughs> I go by colours. <laughs> it's, it's quite fascinating to hear Lucy talk about her experience there. I mean, it's not that she can't taste anything, but there is a massive missing emotional component for her. And, you know, I was most struck by her saying, well, you know, if you didn't need to eat to live, I wouldn't miss it. It's not a big deal. Because you just take for granted that everyone at some level or another can enjoy a meal. And yet it doesn't sound like she does at all, and mm. simply because she's missing that fundamental sense. Mm. It, it, there seems to be a, a lack of um, enjoyment of it, which is so sad because, you know, when we sit to eat, 
there's the sensuality of the thing of actually enjoying the food that we're putting in our mouths and then also the social aspect of wanting to sit with people and I was struck by how she said that she was just tasked with the whole thing of getting the food on the table as fuel for her guests as opposed to being able to derive any pleasure from it um, but what's really interesting is when she mentioned about how emotions were seemingly lacking for her and how that can play into our experience of nostalgic food, nostalgic uh, memories of uh, the way that things taste. If we start to look into memory as the process of perhaps maintaining information over time or drawing on our past experiences in order to help create meaning for the present, if you're losing that whole element of food, what is it that's actually lost? I mean, do you actually lose some part of your emotional range somehow? But they're all, they're all intertwined, aren't they, these systems? And that's the thing, it's very hard to separate them out. Why should they be so intertwined? Why are they all intertwined? Well, to explain it in a little bit more depth, here's Professor Edvard Moser from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Yes. Yes, I hear you very well. Hello. <laughs> First of all... Uh, the taste and uh, the smell systems of the brain have uh, quite strong connections right into the memory systems. Actually, they are located uh, on different sides of the brain, so the smells come in on the front side, and uh, much of the memory system is actually on the far back in the temporal lobe, so on the sides and, and, and back. But despite this long distance, there are quite powerful connections. Uh, uh, we do most of our work in uh, rodents and they are really strong, so even direct connections. When we experience uh, odors or, or tastes, uh, and they are unique, and we experience them uh, in a context when, for example, when we eat good food or, I mean, we have fun together with people, that's a unique connection. And just the fact that there are unique connections between experiences, regardless of what they are, whether they are odors or whether it's something else, and uh, a memory, that uh, is enough by itself to actually make it quite strong. You could, for example, compare it with um, a piece of music, let's say from your childhood, that whenever you saw your grandmom, then she was singing a certain song. And you would then, uh, when you then hear that song later in your life, it will also remind you of your grandmother. So, I think it's important to say it's not, it's not only taste and smells. There are many other pathways into memories. So it's not just smell, but but it does seem that that of all the senses is really closely connected to both memory and emotion, and, and I. I do wonder why that is. Well, it has been suggested that smell is the oldest sense as it has its origins in the rudimentary senses for chemicals in air and in water. And even bacteria have this kind of sense, although we might not necessarily call it smell. And what's interesting when we look at smell compared to the other senses, such as sight, which has four kinds of light senses, um, or for heat and cold and pain and pressure in our skin and in our muscles... But when we look at smell, there are well over a thousand different receptor types which actually regenerate throughout our lifetimes and change according to our uh, environment and what we're used to smelling. And so 
it creates this extraordinary complexity that enables us to discriminate many different kinds of smell, even if they're quite similar to one another, depending on where we were and who we were with at the time when we first smelt them. You know, it's, it's interesting because I was trying to think of uh, something from another sensory modality other than smell that triggers such a profound emotion or memory. And the closest I could get off, off the top of my head was, you know, this experience I've had in, in my medical practice. When you have people who've been injured in accidents uh, and perhaps they've broken a rib and it's punctured their lung, uh, the air can leak out of the lung and into the tissues overlying it. And that produces something called surgical emphysema, so which is air escaping into the tissues. And when you examine the chest and you get your hand on it, they say that it feels like sort of biological bubble wrap. And, th- and that is a really good description. That's what it feels like. But it's different because it's this sort of, you know, this, this clammy chest with this sort of spongy feel. And that for me does evoke both the emotion of dread because you know they've had a bad injury after that and this sort of memory of all these cases in which you've felt that. But it's hard really to find other senses that do that for you. Whereas, you know, for smell, it's a very unitary experience, isn't it? We both have examples of, of very specific smells which we attach very specific emotions. Uh, and and yet that's not true, really, of the other sensory modalities. And they've done quite a lot of work on this connection between smell and memory, and that is something that, with scientific research, we, we've been able to see firsthand. Rats have a very well-developed uh, odour system, and uh, at the same time they have a memory system that is not too different from uh, the ones we have. So um, we trained rats in a task where they had to distinguish between different odors, for example, banana odor, pine odor. And what the rats learned was that whenever there was a banana odor, then they had to go to a food cup that was on the left side in the box. And when there was a pine odor, they had to go to the right side. And then we did similar for other types of odors. So they, they really associated each odor with a certain food well where they had to go to get the reward. Once they learned this, then uh, uh, we recorded activity from their brain using very, very thin uh, wires that pick up the signals from individual cells in an area of the brain that's called the hippocampus and one that is called uh, entorhinal cortex. So they are both part of the memory system. And what we found in that study was that as the animals learned to distinguish the odors and learned which odor was predicted reward at which location, then uh, the cells became more and more tuned to these odors and they started to to work together in a way that uh, they hadn't done before. So the whole network of cells become sort of tuned And when the odor came, then uh, you could almost, by just looking at the activity in cells uh, in this brain area, you could tell uh, whether the rat would actually go to the left side or to the right side, because um, it had developed a pattern that was uh, specific for this choice. Occasionally, these rats made errors. They went to the wrong foot cup. And whenever they made an error and went to the wrong cup, you should actually predict it from the activity pattern in this brain area because then the neurons were firing in a different way 
And uh, you could tell, now it's not going to make it because it uh, probably doesn't manage to retrieve uh, the memory. This research suggests then that areas of the brain that are central to our ability to form long-term memories are actually very closely coupled to our sense of smell so that we can actually translate and connect memories in a set of signals in the head that have potentially an impact on physical location. So what does that say about behaviour and the way that we experience life? Yeah, it's an interesting piece of work, isn't it? That, that there's that very tight coupling between our sense of smell, our memory, and our behaviours to the degree at which they were able to see patterns of neuronal activation, so patterns of activation in the brain before the animal had acted and predict the actions of that animal, so predict the behaviour based upon the firing of neurons specific to the sense of smell. And, and that's really intriguing connection. Uh, and if it affects you at that level, that fundamental level of behaviour and memory, then what does it do for you emotionally if you have no sense of smell for everyday experiences that we all take for granted? Let's go back to Lucy Mangan again, and this time in one of my favourite smelling places, a cafe. Should we go crazy and have some drinks that we can't taste? Let's go. What can I get for you? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it does. What should we have? Let's have a look. Well, let's talk through what we can see on the menu. Let's have a look at the menu. Yeah. Um, um, I can taste peppermint. Can I have a peppermint for you? Please, because I'll get it. It tastes like toothpaste, doesn't it? <laughs> There's a feeling of me, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like a. Um, could you do me a flat white, please? Thank you. Thank you. Am I having a tajini? Yeah, all good. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, we've got quite the anosmic array here. We've got Duncan Boat, who's the founder of Fifth Sense. And am I right in thinking you, unlike me, were you were born with a sense of smell, but you've lost yours, haven't you? Yes, that's right. I lost mine um, in 2005 after a, a, as a result of a head injury. Right. And Tom, you you lost yours. I was uh, most of it. Um, I've always I've retained some sense of smell, uh, but I was assaulted in the street um, when I was 19. Was yours a more straightforward injury? Um, hmm. I, I suffered quite a severe blow to the back of the head, um, falling down some stairs. But the interesting thing is, sort of after about a year of the accident, and, and I sort of sort of felt I would need to put it all behind me and move on. I don't ever think I ever quite regained the sort of level I was at before. And life kind of felt flat, and life never really felt the same again. And I sort of felt that over the years, I was aware that my sort of experience in life had changed, and that things weren't the same as they were anymore. But by this point, because I'd, I'd basically just blocked out the whole smell loss thing, because I thought, well, you know, don't even think about it. If nothing can be done, don't even pay attention to it. So I just kind of... I just didn't engage with it at all. So when I did start to learn about it, it was an absolute epiphany. It allowed me to sort of reconcile the way that I felt life wasn't the same anymore with the loss of smell, as opposed to what did I do to myself when I smacked my head? <laughs> For me, there's something about a smell being a sense of place. You know, what is this smell like? Because that's a massive, a massive rush of information that goes in that gives me a sense of I am here. And, um, and without that, what's it like? And I, I don't feel particularly connected to 
where I am a lot of the time and, and to the, the experience of feeling that I'm living life and there, yeah. there is a feeling that something there is missing. I'd, I'd agree with that massively. This feeling of being disengaged, I, I first had to articulate it when Duncan set up the first Fifth Sense conference and asked me to go and speak for a few minutes about the emotional impact. And it was the first time in 40 years I sat down and thought, what does it mean? And that's what the organization meant to me. And what I came down and really boiled it down to is when we, when we smell the world, it comes into us and it breaks down a barrier between us and the world. But when we see the world, it stays where it is. And there's that loss of connection of this very intimate breaking down of the barrier between me and the, my surroundings, which had gone for me. And that, that really what has got to me to a point of feeling that I was looking through the world at a pane of glass. I mean, I mean, he's right, isn't he? That in a literal sense, when you smell something, it is part of the outside world coming in. You're sensing molecules from that world, you know, in your olfactory bulb, in that extension of your brain. And it's interesting, isn't it, how different the experience is between, say, Lucy, who's never had a sense of smell, and for Duncan and Tom, who both lost their sense of smell much later in life. She doesn't seem to miss it very much, if at all. They're actually really very mournful. Yeah, it's actually quite moving, just imagining what it might be like living life without this sense that we take so often for granted in our hierarchy of senses. You know, how often do we think about smell as being one of the fundamental things that glues us to reality, that enables us to connect with the people that we're with and the places that we are? Ah, now we've got it. Yay! Okay, okay, now it's recording. Ilona Croy is a psychologist at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. If you ask people which sense you would want to lose, yeah, if you have to choose and you want to, and you should lose one of your senses, then what people normally tell you is olfaction or maybe taste. But um, actually, the sense of olfaction is quite important. And this is as much for connection with people and places as it is for, say, food. So what we are actually able is um, we can smell our partner, we can smell our children, we can identify our partner and our children by the sense of affection. So it gives you another channel of um, interpersonal communication, which is normally kind of un unconscious. <laughs> and they've even shown this in experiments with mothers. So what we recently found out in our research is um, that mothers are able to identify the smell of their babies and they really prefer the smell of their own babies compared to the smell of other babies, or through the smell of most babies is quite nice. This tells you something that um, the body order is kind of related to bonding, to mother-child bonding, which is nice. But um, this preference of the own baby's order might actually help you in raising up the offspring, so kind of reducing the costs of raising of the offspring um, by identifying the child which actually belongs to you. You know, I, th I think that's one certainly all parents can relate to, that smell of their children, who <laughs> most of the time don't smell very good, actually. Uh, and, and, and having a sense that's very tightly coupled to your emotional bond with your child seems to be a very sensible thing to have, and one that helps you recognise them and feel affection for them seems to be the sort of trait that you'd expect to be selected for if you, if you believe in, in that sort of evolutionary theory. But it's not just familial bonds that are mediated through our sense of smell. We actually perceive much more things by olfaction than we are aware of. So when you really make kind of sophisticated design, 
and which has been done, and then ask your participants to identify is this the order of sweat um, coming from sports or is this the order of sweat coming from anxiety conditions, then people are quite good doing this. Or people are actually even good at um, identifying chemo signals steaming from tears or identifying the smell of someone who was happy. So actually there's a huge emotional compound But what you also um, seem to be able to smell is if someone is sick, if someone is um, drinking alcohol. So it tells you about something about the physical fitness of someone. And it tells you something about um, the immune competence. So is someone related to you or is someone a good olfactory spoken? Is someone a good match to you? And I think all of those things coming together, yeah, physical fitness, being a good match to you, some kind of emotional condition, this together create some kind of olfactory attraction. So it's interesting, uh, Professor Croy there is, is talking about smell as being fundamental to your relationships and the way you sense the world around you. And yet I think I, and I think many people, don't really put the sense of smell very high in the hierarchy of senses they possess. I mean, it's actually probably, if I had to rank them, it would be the lowest down on my list. Uh, I certainly don't think I've got a very good sense of smell, and I don't think it plays as huge a role for me and yet it's probably more important than I think. But that's certainly not true of everybody else. And that's absolutely not true for other species. Other species are hugely dependent upon smell, as dependent on smell as we are, say, sight or sound. Mm. And it's interesting, so we look at the research that's been done with other species. Some have found that a specific hormone known as vasopressin can actually help animals to recognize each other through their sense of smell. And that when the hormone fails to work, certain species can no longer recognize one another. But it's not just animals that have this sort of interesting relationship with olfaction. In humans, one of the things that researchers found is, for instance, when women are taking uh, a hormonal pill so that they don't get pregnant, if they've been taking it for a while, they can end up mating up with a mate that's genetically more similar and when they come off the pill to conceive can end up with extreme aversion responses or disgust responses for the person that they've set up to make the rest of their life with which if it's you know true is actually quite disturbing so we've been building this multi-dimensional picture of what emotion is and this time looking at it through the lens of the way we sense the world around us and how senses that we might even take for granted such as smell really shape that emotional experience. This episode of Brainwaves was presented by me, Natalie Nahai, and Dr. Kevin Fong. The producers were Eva Krisiak and Max Sanderson. With original music by Jed Flood. For more information about The Guardian's multi-platform exploration of emotion, head over to theguardian.com and search Brainwaves. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.